now to introduce our speaker. We have him for a special two-week engagement, courtesy of a platform exchange, podium exchange. Uh, this is Carl Gregg. He is the minister of the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Frederick. And while he is speaking with us for two weeks, our senior leader, Amanda Poppy, will be delivering the sermons at his congregation. So um, it's a pleasure to have you here, Carl, and I look forward to hearing your talk. Thank you. Thank you. Clapping before I say anything. All right. Votes well. Good morning. I'm uh, grateful for the opportunity for a two-week return to West. I had the honor one previous time of delivering a platform address here a little more than two years ago. I have a deep respect for the ethical culture movement, and I'm grateful to count your senior leader, Amanda Poppy, as a colleague and a friend. Speaking of, Amanda tells me that your theme here this summer is, or this season, is Summer of Love. I suspect many of you are familiar with that quote from Dr. Cornell West, that justice is what love looks like in public, just like tenderness is what love feels like in private. So this morning, I'd like to invite us uh, to reflect on what it can mean to choose a justice-building love in public, using as a guide the late American pragmatist philosopher Richard, Rohr Richard Rorty. And next Sunday, to give you a little preview of why I hope you'll come back and bring a friend, uh, I invite you to I'll be pursuing a similar track um, related to the labor movement. We'll be asking questions next week like, why a 40-hour work week? It's decreased before. Might it decrease again? And why might or might not that be a good thing? We'll dig into the history of how that standard so-called full-time conception of labor arose as a way of opening our imaginations further about how we conceive of time, how we conceive of ourselves, and how we conceive of one another. But for now, as a way of reflecting some on what it can mean to choose a justice-building love in public, let me start with a story. During my childhood, the closest glimpse I ever had to just what is this beloved community and what might it look like, I think it might have been at summer camp. Any summer camp people out there? All right, we got a few. Starting at age 10, I attended a, a summer camp each summer in Black Mountain, North Carolina for two weeks each year. That was extended to four weeks a year at age 16 and then to six weeks as a junior counselor. And then during college, I would spend about 10 to 12 weeks there every summer, first as a counselor and then as an age group director, uh, then as a waterfront director, and then I my capstone experience was a, as a water ski instructor, so that was a good summer. Uh, from the perspective of my young childhood and early teenage years, those few weeks each summer were like this perfect, idyllic, beloved community. We ate together uh, in a large dining hall, just like Harry Potter, right? We slept in cabins and lodges. We played games. We sang songs. We learned skills. I would sometimes think, why don't we just live the whole summer, the whole year, like it was summer camp? 
Now, growing up as a Southern Baptist in South Carolina, I didn't know much at the time about the 1960s or countercultural movements and communes or various utopian um, schemes throughout the ages. And in retrospect, I'm aware of other angles that were invisible to me as a child, such as the race and class privilege that were mostly unconscious parts of my childhood summer camp experience. As I grew older and ascended the ranks, moving from camper to counselor to director level, I began to see the ways that this summertime experience was actually kind of an exhausting sprint for the adults that was not sustainable in that way year-round. And even as I became aware of these underlying dynamics, I still envied those camp owners who did live at, year, live at camp year-round. They were fascinating people, and I used to think that, well, even if camp isn't sustainable year-round for 400 campers and 150 staff, then it still must be this core, perpetual, beloved community for those families who were the full-time year-round residents. But again, as I grew up and entered that inner circle of central staff, I began to understand that even these phenomenal camp owners who did so much to create that magic of camp for one season out of every year, it turns out they were human beings, just like the rest of us, with imperfections, with rivalries. And then for the most part during the off-season, they retreated to their respective families and homes. That's what I discovered as I was occasionally visit over the off-season. It wasn't just one long party uh, when the, the kids were gone. And I'm sure that they had similar issues in, within their families as the rest of us. Many of you probably may know the saying that our family can push our buttons the most because our families sewed on our buttons in the first place. So far I've been sharing some about how my experience at summer camp was one of my earlier lessons in both the possibilities and the pitfalls of building beloved community. And since this congregation is duly affiliated with the American Ethical Union and the Unitarian Universalist Association, let me widen our perspective just a little bit with a related example about Brook Farm, a utopian experiment by some transcendentalist forebears of the modern Unitarian Universalist movement. Brook Farm was founded in the heyday of utopianism in the United States. Around 119 communal and utopian societies were established in this country between 1800 and 1859, which is right there on the edge of the Civil War. More than half of them were formed during what became known as the frenetic 40s, 1840s, right? A decade marked by some of the most intense reform fervor that this country has ever witnessed. And caught up in the spirit of the times, in 1840, the Unitarian minister, George Ripley, left his pulpit to experiment with what was then called building the city of God. We sang some about this sort of new city and new vision earlier. What today we might call the beloved community. They chose a 200-acre former dairy farm located nine miles outside of Boston. Sterling Delane, who's written a book called Brook Farm, 
the dark side of Utopia, writes that the community is nostalgically recalled as a bucolic retreat in which the days began with m choruses of Mozart and Haydn by the Brook Farm Choir and afternoons were interrupted in order to read Dante's great work in the original Italian. And evenings featured dramatic tableau, lectures and dancing, this sort of summertime beloved community, right, trying to live that year round. Life at Brook Farm often did resemble an Arcadian adventure, but what is rarely remembered and acknowledged is the desperation that came from unrelieved financial pressures, the loss of faith in Brook Farm leaders, the class antagonisms that smoldered just beneath the surface of community civility. When you're accustomed to this urban literary life of the mind, it turns out that a few months of reading agricultural books doesn't actually prepare you adequately mentally, physically, fiscally to run a real live farm. And all the residents of Brook Farm, they did find the country life to be invigorating in many ways. A huge initial setback was that after five full months of nearly back-breaking physical labor around the farm, the community still had no reliable source of income, or even more alarming, a feasible financial plan to sustain the association's future operations. And although the Brook Farm experiment lasted for six years, from 1841 to 1847, two tragedies were the final tipping points toward collapse. First, and I'll let you draw your own parallels here to today, there was a smallpox outbreak in November 1845 because, some of you probably guessed it, they didn't get vaccinated. No emails, please, just stating the historical record. Second, in March the following year, an accidental fire destroyed a major new building project that had never been insured. That, that added a devastating loss on top of major pre-existing financial strain. One reason the Brook Farm story is poignant for me is that that childhood summer camp that I was telling you about earlier, it was founded in 1956. The previous two decades, that mountain valley um, around Lake Eden, note that utopian uh, callback to the Garden of Eden, that mountain valley around Lake Eden where I spent so many formative summers as a child, previously had been the exact site of the radical progressive experiment in education known as Black Mountain College. Have any of you heard of that? Okay. Uh, visitors included path-breaking figures such as philosopher John Dewey, playwright Thornton Wilder, novelist Henry Miller, writer Al Aldous Huxley, and the musician John Cage. Buckmeister Fuller erected the first geodesic dome on the field where I learned to play ultimate frisbee. There were you know, murals underneath the main office building painted by some of these famous artists. It was a collection of well-intentioned, gifted, innovative people trying to build a beloved community. But similar to Brook Farm, money was always an issue. And when the college disbanded every April, no one really knew if it would reopen the next fall. Eventually, it did not uh, reopen, allowing the formation of that summer camp that continues to this day. Now, during much of my time at that summer camp, I was being raised to be a theologically conservative Christian, shaped to believe that in the end, all will be well. That no matter what humans do, God was ultimately in control and would make sure that one day the lion would lay down with the lamb, not eat the lamb, right? That the swords would be beaten into plowshares and that people wouldn't beat, beat each other up with the plowshares and that we would study war no more. 
Did any of you see the film, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel? All right, quite a few of you. More of those than for Latin College. That's fine. Uh, that movie features a secularized version of this idea. Some of you may remember the quote that everything will be okay in the end, and if it's not okay, it's not the end, right? <laughs> Here's the problem. As a child, I was taught that in the grand scheme of things, we could rest assured that love wins. It's a lovely thought. But in college, I started studying science a lot more closely. And I started to think that although love can win in the short term, the truth seems to be that if we're honest, doesn't entropy win? Consider this quote from the philosopher Ray Brassier, which tells a different story than the biblical New Eden. He writes, one trillion, 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 these are all T's, one trillion, trillion, trillion years from now, the accelerating expansion of the universe will have disintegrated the fabric of matter itself, terminating the possibility of enlightenment. This feels like the summer of love, right? Every star in the universe will have burnt out, plunging the cosmos into a state of absolute darkness, leaving behind nothing but spent husks of collapsed matter. All free matter, whether on planetary surfaces or in interstellar space, will have decayed, eradicating any remnants of life. The stellar corpses littering the empty universe will evaporate into a brief hailstorm of elementary particles. Atoms themselves will cease to exist. Only the implacable gravitational expansion will continue, driven by the current, currently uh, inexplicable force called dark energy, which will keep pushing the extinguished universe deeper and deeper into an eternal and unfathomable blackness. Entropy wins, right? <laughs> All right. But that's one trillion, trillion, trillion years from now, so we're good. No worries. In all seriousness, though, many ethical systems hold that we should act morally because of some cosmic carrot or stick. That if you do good, you'll be blessed in the afterlife, and if you do bad, you'll be eternally punished. But given what we know about our marginal place in the 13.8 billion year old universe story, what can it mean and why might we want to choose meaning, to choose community, to choose hope? Here's another truth. Regardless of whether our choices are eternally significant, they remain deeply impactful right here and right now. In light of all we know in the early 21st century as heirs to Copernicus, to Darwin, to Freud, to so many other paradigm shifters, one of the people who has helped me most in reflecting of how do we live ethically in our globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world is the late American pragmatist philosopher Richard Rorty. In the late 90s, as an undergraduate philosophy major, I first read his book, Contingency, Irony, Solidarity. And as a graduation present, one of my favorite philosophy professors gave me a copy of his collection of essays, Rorty's collection of essays, called Philosophy and Social Hope. In 1990, the New York Times called Rorty the then most influential contemporary American philosopher, one of those philosophers that people actually read because they were lucid and engaging and relevant for the times. I've continued to read Rorty in the years since, including the 500-page Rorty Reader. That's a good starting point if you're feeling ambitious after this uh, platform address. If you're feeling just maybe a little curious after this platform address, a much more accessible entry point is his short 140-page book with 
much bigger margins and font size, called Achieving Our Country. And I think that's a poignant title these days. What might it mean to actually achieve our country? It's a call for us to live into the best ideals of the American experiment. As I've learned more about Rorty, I've been, uh, was fascinated to find out that, that, that not only did this world-class philosopher get two C's in college, he received two of those C's in philosophy classes. <laughs> At the time, Rorty was wrestling uh, very seriously with depression. But with help, he was able to continue his studies. Another significant part of Rorty's story is that his maternal grandmother, uh, maternal grandfather, excuse me, was Walter Rauschenbusch, one of the leaders in the early 20th century social gospel movement. The social gospel emphasized that the gospel, the so-called good news that the historical Jesus lived and taught, not the stuff that's been uh, taught about him, that that was less about saving individuals from hell in the next world and a lot more about loving the hell out of this world. The social gospel was what Jesus called the kingdom of God and what more modern day leaders like Dr. King called the beloved community following another philosopher called um, uh, Josiah um, Royce. Following in these footsteps, both of Rorty's parents were freelance writers and activists. And looking to the current generation, it's also significant to note that Paul Rauschenbusch, uh, Walter Rauschenbusch's great-grandson, is an ordained minister and activist. Uh, Paul and his husband, Brad Gooch, have one son who is the namesake of his famous ancestor, Walter Gooch Rauschenbusch. So I've taken the time to lay out these generation-spanning connections because following the philosopher Alastair McIntyre, there is truth in the claim that often I can only answer the question of what am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart. In that spirit, consider this quote from Rorty's autobiographical essay of the stories that he found himself a part of as a child. He writes, and, and this is, makes us think about what stories are we involving our children in, right? He says, when I was 12, the most salient books on my parents' bookshelves, so you can think back to what were the salient books on your parents' bookshelves, or what are the salient books on your bookshelves that your parents are saying. For Rorty at 12, the two most salient volumes on his parents' shelves were two red-bound books, The Case of Leon Trotsky and Not Guilty. He says, these made up the report of the Dewey Commission of Inquiry of the Moscow Trials. And he said, while I never read them with the wide-eyed fascination that I brought to other books on my parents' bookshelves, like Kraft Ebling's Psychopathia Sexualis, I still thought of them in the ways that other children thought of their family's Bible. They were books that radiated redemptive truth and moral splendor. And if I were a really good boy, I would say to myself, I should have read not only the Dewey Commission reports, but also Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution. A book, he says, that I started many times, but never managed to finish. For in the 1940s, the Russian Revolution and its betrayal by Stalin were for me what the Incarnation and its betrayal by Catholics had been to precocious little Lutherans 400 years earlier. And you can think some here about, you know, we're in, 19, we're in 2017, the Russian Revolution is in 1917, and it's been interesting to watch the coverage of how Putin has really downplayed the Russian Revolution and this 100th anniversary. How history is remembered, how stories are told, really matters. 
He, um, Rorty continues. He said, I grew up knowing that all decent people were, if not Trotskyites, at least socialists. Working as an unpaid office boy during my 12th winter, I carried drafts of press releases from the Workers' Defense League office. On the subway, I would read the documents I was carrying. What documents are we asking our children to carry? He says, they told me a lot about what factory workers did to union organizers, about what plantation owners did to sharecroppers, about what the uh, white locomotive engineers union did to colored firemen, whose jobs these white men now wanted, now that diesel engines were replacing coal steam-fired ones. So at 12, I knew that the point of being human was to spend one's life fighting against social injustice. What story? What stories did you find yourself a part of as a child? Even more importantly, what story? What stories are you choosing to weave into your narrative now and into the future? Realizing that we humans are not at the center of the universe, but merely the third rock from the sun uh, that is on the periphery of one spiral galaxy that is only one among what astronomers tell us is one of two trillion it used to be billion, right? Now they're telling us two trillion galaxies, not solar systems, in the universe. That could lead one to nihilistic despair about our insignificance in the grand scheme of things. After Darwin, we know that we're not a little lower than the angels. We're just a little higher, at best, than the apes. And deeply connected to the ecosystems of this one planet. But there are ways that we can choose to reframe that story. From the perspective of American pragmatism, Rorty writes that to say we are clever animals, that's not to say something philosophical or something pessimistic. To say that we are clever animals is to say something political, and it is to say something that is potentially hopeful. Namely, that if we can work together, we can make ourselves collectively into whatever we are clever and courageous enough to imagine ourselves into becoming. That is to set aside questions such as, what is a human being? And substitute the question like, what world might we create for our grandchildren? That sort of seven-generational thinking that can be conceived of as ethical decisions that should honor the wisdom three generations back, back to our great-grandparents, and consider the legacy that you are leaving three generations hence, uh, your great-grandchildren, can be an incredibly fruitful way of being in the world. Rorty writes, it turns out that a willingness to endure suffering for the sake of future reward, what in my childhood we used to call fire insurance, right, you're doing it, uh, so that the willingness to endure suffering for the sake of future reward, that's actually transferable from individual rewards to social ones, from hope for paradise for oneself to hope for creating a more of a paradise on earth for our grandchildren. Can you hear the influence in that quote from uh, Walter Rauschenbusch and the social gospel movement two generations before Rorty and, and the ways that that now two generation hence is influencing that minister and activist Paul Rauschenbusch as he raises his new son named Walter? You may have seen Paul Rauschenbusch, his writings in many places, including the Huffington Post. You can Google him later. In the grand scheme of things, none of us knows with certainty what the universe will look like one trillion, trillion, trillion years from now, or what will or won't happen after we die. 
But Rorty calls on us, nevertheless, to do what we know that we can do. That despite contingency, despite irony, we can still choose solidarity with one another. Despite temptation to despair, we can choose meaning and community and hope. Part of how we live into that promise is by being intentional about the stories that we choose to tell and not to allow ministers of propaganda, as it were, to choose our stories for us. We can choose the stories that we tell for ourselves and for coming generations. Now, don't get me wrong, we need to be honest that we live in an age of rising authoritarianism, of crass capitalism, of cynical manipulations of the democratic process. And Rorty died in 2007, more than a decade ago, but three days after our most recent presidential election, some of you may recall that a photo of three paragraphs um, from Rorty's book that he wrote actually 20 years ago went viral on social media, causing the book to sell out on Amazon and for Harvard University Press to reprint it for the first time since 2010. Back in 1998, in a book I mentioned earlier called Achieving Our Country, Rorty predicted the following. He wrote that members, members of labor unions and unorganized, unskilled workers will sooner or later realize that their government is not even trying to prevent wages from sinking or prevent jobs from being exported. Around the same time, they'll realize that suburban white-collar workers themselves, desperately afraid of being downsized, are not going to let themselves be taxed to provide social benefits for anyone else. At that point, Rorty wrote 20 years ago, something will crack. The non-suburban electorate will decide that the system has failed, and they'll start looking around for a strong man to vote for. Someone willing to assure them that once he is elected, the smug bureaucrats and the tricky lawyers and the overpaid bond salesmen and the postmodernist professors will no longer be calling the shots. One thing that is very likely to happen, Rorty wrote, is that the gains made in the past 40 years by black and brown Americans, by homosexuals, will be wiped out. Jocular contempt for women will come back into fashion. All that resentment which, which badly educated Americans feel about having their manners dictated to them by college graduates will find an outlet in that strongman. Here's a crucial twist. Rorty doesn't end with that negative envision of impending dystopia. He continues by calling us to live in to the best of the, Ameri the ideals of the American experiment, nevertheless. He writes, we must acquire an image of ourselves as heirs to a tradition of increasing liberty and rising hope, of wanting ourselves and our children to come to think of ourselves as proud and loyal citizens. That it's not just about that rural Americans are only real Americans. We are all can be proud and loyal citizens of a country that slowly and painfully threw off a foreign yoke, freed its slaves, enfranchised its women, restrained its robber barons, licensed its trade unions, liberalized its religious practices, broadened its moral tolerance, and built colleges in which increasing percentages of the populace could enroll. A country that numbered Jefferson. Thoreau, Susan B. Anthony, Eugene Debs, Rosa Parks, and James Baldwin among its citizens. Now, a perfect utopia will always remain elusive. Today, there's more that we could add to Rorty's list about a new Jim Crow and the need for a third reconstruction in this country. 
But the point remains that we can and must demand better for ourselves, for our children, and for generations to come. Let us learn to tell stories of liberation and freedom and hope. Let's learn to tell them better and more boldly. Let us learn to turn our dreams into deeds. And let us together build a world of peace, liberty, and justice. Not just for some, but for all.